Welcome to Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Ms. Maureen Major, a nurse who works with Dr. Cliff Huddis, Chief of the Medical Oncology Breast Cancer Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, for her take on the biopsychosocial spectrum of clinical and education needs for patients with all stages of this increasingly complicated disease. And Ms. Major began our conversation by discussing perhaps the most challenging situation, recurrence of cancer after adjuvant systemic therapy. The two resounding factors that patients with a recurrence verbalize to me is first a sense of failure in that they have failed the therapy versus therapy having failed them. There's a lot of ongoing dialogue about how Best therapy at the time in the adjuvant setting has improved over time, and certainly if there is a recurrence that happens at really the time of diagnosis, that the tumors were too small for us to see at that time, our screening techniques or our surveillance or our scanning techniques are good, but they're not good enough to detect tumors with very small cells, and until they get larger, we can't see them, and therefore the drugs do the best they can. And then we focus really on the chronicity of the disease and that while this is obviously a disappointment to the patient, there are many, many, many treatment options that we can offer them. And it's not only focusing on chemotherapy, but we can focus in some percentage of patients on hormonal manipulation to slow down the growth of their cancer. And probably even more exciting is this focus of targeted therapies and really looking at the biology of of the cancer and slowing down the pathways or the signaling processes that signal cell growth. Let's talk about some of the treatments that are available to people in this situation. You mentioned hormonal therapy. From that perspective, again, metastatic disease, anything you want to comment on about how hormonal therapy is used in patients in this situation? So in patients, it's always important to review their past history to determine if a patient were estrogen or progesterone receptor positive, they would be certainly a candidate for a course of hormonal treatment. There are many options that we can choose for a patient or discuss with them, such as aromatase inhibitors, estrogen down regulators, as well as the tamoxifen or an anti-estrogen. I think the important message for a patient is to know that there are many options that we could choose from. And if perhaps one doesn't work, that we could move on to another with as much optimism as we had with the first one. The other thing I think it's important for us to educate our patients about is that the goal of metastatic disease is balancing quality of life with disease control. And in order to achieve that, we have to truly look at the patient that's sitting in front of us. And if that patient comes into the clinic with a tremendous amount of disease burden that causes that patient's symptoms, then their quality of life is altered. And therefore, we may make choices about chemotherapy over hormonal therapy in that particular situation. But it doesn't mean once the disease is controlled, we couldn't go back to using hormonal manipulation in the future. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that you counsel patients about who are starting a new therapy in terms of potential side effects. And we'll talk about the AIs when we talk about adjuvant, but maybe you can comment a little bit on how you approach the patient who's going to receive full vestrin. 
So in terms of fulvestrin treatment recommendation, we basically sit down and explain to them how the mechanism action of the drug, and then we focus on the side effect profile. We talk about the administration. We talk about the loading administration of the drug, meaning that it's given once every two weeks times two, and then on a monthly basis. And we certainly talk about the fact that it's a once-a-month dose and that patients don't need to take any other medication between one appointment visit and the next. I think it's important to discuss with the patient the medication is a large volume, and it is thick in nature, which could compromise the administration technique. And what I mean by that is that patients could experience symptoms of the injection, not so much symptoms of cancer, but when you're giving it, patients certainly can complain of numbness and tingling in their leg as they're actually receiving the injection, but that it is a very transient symptom. It's within 24 hours, it goes away. And if it lingers any longer than that, then it's important for them to call us. The second thing is that we can talk about if it's uncomfortable, there are other alternatives. There's a 5 ml dose. We could divide that into two injections of two and a half mls each and achieve the same dosage per month for that patient. So there's some technique adjustments that we can make if that patient's having a problem. But in terms of side effect profile, I haven't really encountered any problems with patients having, other than local site tenderness, any untoward side effects from fulvestrin. Let's talk a little bit about the use of chemotherapy and metastatic disease. And one of the most common regimens that's being used right now is a combination of paclitaxel and bevacizumab, particularly in people who may not have had taxanes in the adjuvant setting. Again, assuming you're sitting down with somebody who's going to start that combination, who's never received either of those drugs before, can you kind of talk about how you explain to them what the therapy is and what to expect? So I first focus on the most common thing that they would understand, which is chemotherapy, especially if they've had chemotherapy in the past in the adjuvant setting. I'd focus on paclitaxel and that it's a medication that initially up front has a potential risk of a hypersensitivity reaction. So they receive pre-medication in terms of steroids and H2 inhibitors or antagonists to prevent any type of HSRs. And then I really focus on the side effect profile, which most predominantly is peripheral neuropathy, and that patients do complain of numbness and tingling. It is not something that they'll experience immediately after the infusion, but as time goes on, this is something that can be a problem for patients. And it's evaluated at each treatment cycle. And if we find that that symptom is altering the quality of life, there may be a decision made to reduce the dose depending on what's going on. I would then focus on the fact that Avastin, also known as Bevazuzumab, is a targeted therapy and it's an anti-angiogenic. So it actually chokes the tumor at the vessel level. And the most predominant side effect that I have seen in patients with breast cancer is their risk for hypertension. So we very carefully get a baseline 
blood pressure monitoring. And if a patient does demonstrate an elevation in blood pressure, we would encourage them to purchase a home blood pressure monitoring kit and talk to them about when they should call us depending on what the blood pressure values are at home. So we don't encourage them to initially go out and purchase it, but certainly if they manifest a symptom of hypertension and it's hard to differentiate, is it just white coat anxiety or do they truly have hypertension, we would encourage them to purchase a home machine for daily management and then after a period of days or a week to call into the office with those blood pressure readings. According to the research reports, the hypertension that's seen doesn't happen in every patient. As a matter of fact, it doesn't happen in most patients, but when it does happen, supposedly it's fairly easy to control. Has that been your experience? That has been my experience, that it does not happen in every patient. It is not across-the-board recommendation, and there is certainly initiation of antihypertensives have easily managed this symptom for patients. Also, the research suggests that in terms of quality of life, in terms of how people feel or side effects, like a lot of other antibody therapies, it supposedly doesn't have a major impact on how people feel. Again, is that your impression? Bevazuzumab is a drug that doesn't really cause alterations in quality of life. It's a drug that is well tolerated. It is a friendly drug to patients in that it's initially infused over 90 minutes and then that infusion time is decreased after a few successful administrations without any type of hypersensitivity reaction. So I do agree that this is a medication that is well tolerated in that metastatic patient population. Now, another issue about bevacizumab is the fact that, at least in breast cancer, so far the research that's been done suggests that it prolongs the time on treatment or the progression-free survival. It slows down progression. But so far we haven't been able to demonstrate a survival benefit, although that's getting hard to do in metastatic breast cancer because there's so many things that patients get afterwards that could affect their survival. But just looking at that as a benefit, how much of a benefit do you think it is to slow the tumor down and maybe delay the time that you're going to have to switch treatment? Well, as you suggested, it's getting very difficult to really identify survival advantage in this metastatic population. But to talk to a patient about feeling well on treatment and slowing down that disease progression with this medication is an added benefit to that patient. And certainly when you're sitting down with them in your clinic area and you have an optimistic drug that will slow down the course of that progression, it is something eagerly embraced by that patient population. Now, a couple other things that have been noted with bevacizumab. One is proteinuria and another, in some cases, is epistaxis. Again, have you observed that? We do test for proteinuria in the urine on a monthly basis in our patients and have not seen that to be much of a problem in our particular center. In terms of epitaxis, it's hard to differentiate. Certainly patients do complain of not so much frank nosebleeds, but certainly mucus shreds or bloody shreds when they blow their nose. It is not something that has caused us to stop treatment or hold treatment on our patients, but we talk a lot about using emollients for the nose and kind of some good skin care for the soft tissue of the nose to try and prevent that from happening. But it is certainly something that patients do report. Now, you mentioned paclitaxel, which is the drug that in breast cancer was studied with bevacizumab. 
But there also are a couple other taxanes, obviously, that are commonly used in breast cancer, one being docetaxel and the other being nabpaclitaxel. Just sort of putting aside the issue of whether you combine it with bevacizumab, in the metastatic breast cancer, how do you compare side effects profile of the three taxanes? It's a difficult choice in terms of drug choice in the taxane world. I think some of it has to do, obviously, with the economic landscape of the different drugs and the cost of these drugs. But if I were to talk to the patient, I would say that I do see peripheral neuropathy more frequently with paclitaxel than with docetaxel. The most neuropathic drug would be nanoparticle albumin-bound paclitaxel. I think that that's a great drug for a patient who's exhibited other reasons not to take a steroid, like a diabetic or a patient that perhaps has some type of reason that they can't tolerate steroids on a weekly or Q3-week basis. Abraxane is an excellent alternative to that, as well as somebody who has had perhaps a hypersensitivity reaction to one of the other taxanes nanoparticle albumin paclitaxel is a good alternative. I think in terms of docetaxel at our institution, we don't give it as frequently, but I have seen some weight gain in those patients and they're on prolonged days of steroids than with the other two taxanes. You mentioned the fact that with a nab paclitaxel, the steroids aren't required. What do you see in terms of side effects from steroids? You mentioned the diabetes but other issues such as weight gain, sleeplessness, agitation. We see a lot of common side effects with weekly or frequent dosing of steroids. Certainly patients have a lot of weight gain. Peripheral edema is very apparent in these patients, especially when you're treating them on a weekly basis. They can develop like a moon face or facial swelling. Restlessness and irritability is apparent for about 24 hours after initiating steroids. And so I think that there are a lot of uncomfortable side effects related to steroids. Patients complain of GI toxicity like epigastric distress on steroids, as well as restless irritability and sleeplessness. Let's shift over to the adjuvant setting and start out talking a little bit about hormonal therapy, again, focusing on what you discuss with patients in terms of side effects. Let's start out with a younger patient, maybe say around age 40, premenopausal, who's going to receive tamoxifen. How do you counsel people about that? Again, I start off with, in terms of a premenopausal woman on tamoxifen, I start off with it as discussing the mechanism of action in that it works to block the receptor that binds to estrogen and enables cells to grow, multiply, and divide. I focus on the fact that tamoxifen blocks the receptor. It does not alter estrogen levels within the patient's body, and that is important to highlight. Bone health is an important benefit to tamoxifen, so we focus on that. We then talk about the dosing, which being one tablet once a day, and then we focus on the side effects, and that certainly patients, the biggest risk is for a deep vein thrombosis. So in a 40-year-old, I'm or PE, in a 40-year-old, I'm less concerned about a PE in somebody who's young and active, but I would be concerned about that in an older woman. 
I discuss the side effects or I discuss the symptoms associated with a deep vein thrombosis plus unequal pain, redness and swelling in a lower extremity or the arms, and focus on an action plan if those things develop. I then also focus on the fact that sometimes there's some vaginal discharge. It should not cause vaginal dryness. Those are the side effects that we would really focus on. Some people report in the short term of some swelling in the extremities, although that seems to resolve very quickly over time. I guess another issue, which is not so much in the premenopausal patient, more the postmenopausal, is endometrial cancer. How do you approach that, and do you have patients go to gynecologists for screening or evaluation routinely? So we do focus on the fact that in the same conversation I have with a patient that tamoxifen is good for the bones because it seems like estrogen to the bones and helps with calcium mineralization into the skeletal structure in the uterus tamoxifen is looked as a estrogen and proliferates cell growth. So there is a risk for endometrial cancer. It's important for a patient to notify the office for abnormal bleeding that may occur, especially in a postmenopausal woman. We do encourage yearly GYN visits. There's a lot of discussion within the gynecological community regarding the use of transvaginal ultrasounds and whether or not endometrial thickening is indicative of cancer. And so there's ongoing dialogue between the oncology community and the gynecological community regarding the benefits of transvaginal ultrasounds and the action plan for thickened endometrium. Now, what about the postmenopausal patient? Right now, the vast majority of these women are going to receive an aromatase inhibitor. What do you say to patients who are about to begin an AI? Again, we talk about the dosing structure. We talk about it being one tablet once a day, which is an important component to the compliance for these patients is outlining the responsibility up front of what they're buying into with this adjuvant hormonal therapy. However, if you focus on the benefits in that, this is clearly in six studies has shown a benefit over tamoxifen in the early breast cancer setting. It's an important component to their treatment. I highlight the side effects in that this is medication that does lower circulating estrogen levels in the body, and patients may experience some menopausal symptoms from a further reduced estrogen level. What I see in my patients is not commonly increased hot flashes or sleeplessness, but I do see patients complaining of joint pains and body aches. And they report, they call into the office usually two to three to four months after initiating an aromatase inhibitor with a complaint that they feel old. Their joints hurt, and it's not the large joints of the body like the hips, it's the small joints like the wrist and the ankles. And usually it's bilateral, not unilateral. And patients say it improves over the time of day, so it's worse in the morning, but as they start to move, it gets better. I highlight this for two reasons. One is that, and probably most importantly for patients, it's important for them to understand their first thought about these joint pains and body aches is that it is a recurrence of cancer in their bone. And so we focus on the fact that these are common side effects, and they could call the office and we would review the symptoms with them. We don't want to assume it's just a side effect of the drug. So it's important to have dialogue with the oncology office regarding those symptoms. The second reason we highlighted is that while there's no evidence to support 
any interventions with these joint pains and body aches, we know that if we get patients moving, they're going to feel better. So exercise is an important component to this regimen in managing this symptom on a better basis. So if we get patients moving, weight-bearing exercise, resistance exercising, we think that they may have a reduced severity of this symptom. Although I have to tell you, there's no data or evidence that supports that at this point. Any medications or other strategies at work? Sure. We've tried chondroitin. We've tried the Advils or the ibuprofens. Some people use pain medication too or arthritis-type medicines, but I, in my practice, have not really seen any tremendous benefit in any of those medications. Another approach that we've taken with patients who report these symptoms and they're life-altering, meaning that they're not able to get up out of bed because their bones hurt or they're not able to walk or they're not able to exercise because they feel so arthritic or old, is to stop the medication for a period of time, almost a washout for two to three weeks, and then potentially restart it. If there's no improvement in the symptoms when we restart, because we have the benefit of three drugs in that category, we could potentially switch to another aromatase inhibitor and hope that we get some improvement in that patient's joint pains and body aches. Now, what I hear from oncologists is while these symptoms are fairly common, it's not that common for people to have to switch or stop the medication. Is that your experience? It is my experience. We work hard to keep the patients on these medications, meaning that lots of dialogue, lots of interventions, even if it's just listening to them. And we don't easily switch off, but we do recognize that there are patients that have altered qualities of life, and we would easily switch to another drug in that category, or potentially if the drug just causes untolerable side effects. We could easily go to tamoxifen. We know that that's a great drug for these patients if they haven't had it in the past. And so we would work hard to try and keep the patient on some form of hormonal therapy. I think the conversation about the aromatase inhibitor therapy and joint pains and body aches is a conversation that happens between the nursing profession and the patient. For some reason, doctors walk into the room and there's no problems. Patients have no complaints and they leave with their next prescription for their next 30 or 100 days of therapy and you know they're going to come back and see us in a year or whatever the sequence of medical visits are. But it's the patient and the nurse that have that dialogue about the difficulties of aromatase inhibitor therapy. And so I think it's important for us as nurses to give our patients permission to complain about them because they're real, the joint pains are real. I can't explain the phenomenon of that joint pain. I don't have an easy solution to the problem, except that there are solutions that patients can try. And if it's intolerable, then we try another drug. And if that's intolerable, we try another drug. So there are options out there, but it's ongoing dialogue. And sometimes there's frustration on both ends, on a clinician's end, because we don't have an easy answer. And on the patient's end, because they feel old and tired. What about the issue of AIs and bone? So we know that all the landmark studies in aromatase inhibitor in the early breast cancer setting had a diminished bone health or bony structure on these medications. As a baseline, it's important prior to starting a patient to identify a candidate that's suitable for them. So somebody who comes into your clinic reporting 
uh, past medical history of a fracture or has severe osteoporosis, that may not be the patient that you want to put on an aromatase inhibitor. However, we do annual screening. We recommend annual bone densities on our patients up front. We recommend calcium supplementation with vitamin D. We talk about lifestyle changes or lifestyle interventions like weight-bearing exercise three times a week, twice a week resistance exercising. And we really focus with the patient on those type of interventions so that we can limit the liability of these aromatase inhibitors on the skeletal structure. And then finally, to intervene with bisphosphonate therapy when appropriate, depending on the patient and the bone density score. You mentioned the issue of adherence to oral therapy in in cancer. Certainly, anti-hormone therapy is one of the most common oral therapies we use, and we use it for a long time, many years. The literature suggests that there are a fair number of women who don't take their medicines reliably, and yet you talk to patients and doctors and nurses, and they say, well, no, it's not a problem. These are cancer patients. They take their medicine. What's your take on all that? I think that's a great point. I think compliance or adherence to medication is in the cancer population. I mean, certainly there's a tremendous amount of data in other chronic illnesses that patients don't take their medication. So I don't know why we would think in our patient population things would be different. However, perhaps this is a more motivated group. Personally, I think my patients take their medicines. But I have read the literature, and I know that I am more than likely proven wrong. So I think my responsibility to my patient with breast cancer, first and foremost, is access to medication. Make it easy for them to get it, work with them and their insurance companies or their government assistance programs or the pharmaceutical assistance programs to help them get access to their medication. It's important for me to talk to patients about adherence and why it's important for them to take their medication, enlighten them on the benefits of the drug, despite side effects, that drugs come with a cost. And so to highlight the benefits as well as the toxicities. And finally, I think it's important for us to have an open level of communication with our patient. I think if patients aren't taking drugs, it's not because they don't want to. It's that they have access issues or some other preconceived notion that an oral tablet is not as beneficial as something they receive intravenously. One of the things that's interesting in terms of hormone therapy is that in the past, we've thought about five years as the duration of treatment, and that for a long time has been the standard duration of tamoxifen. But now with the aromatase inhibitors, there are trials out there looking at beyond five years. There's the issue of giving AI to a woman who's already had five years of tamoxifen. And also the whole issue of how long the patient really is at risk for relapse, particularly the patient with an ER-positive tumor, where it seems like now we're more sensitive to the fact that it's not uncommon for these relapses to occur after five years. How do you explain that to a patient? I never really like to sit down with the patient and talk about the statistics of ER-positive breast cancer or hormone-receptor-positive breast cancer. I don't think it's helpful for them to focus on the fact that there's a higher number of recurrences at 15 years out in the ER-positive population versus the ER-negative population, and the longevity of their risk is perhaps greater than that ER-negative patient that comes through our clinic door. And in terms of adherence, it's important for us to outline the fact that the benefit 
that is continuous. It's going to be ongoing. And I think patients are motivated in most instances by the fact that they're taking medication. I have a harder time when we try and stop somebody's hormonal therapy for whatever reason than allowing them to keep going because the data suggests or the evidence suggests that there's an improvement when we treat patients for a longer period of time with hormonal manipulation. Now, another issue with adjuvant therapy in the ER-positive situation is it seems like that we're becoming more aware of the fact that chemotherapy doesn't work as well in the patients with the ER-positive tumors. And so the questions come up about how do you pick out people who might benefit from therapy? And one of the most recent innovations has been the use of the Oncotype DX assay to try to identify those fraction of patients with ER-positive tumors who might benefit from chemotherapy. How is the use of that assay playing out in your own practice? Development of Oncotype DX testing by Genomic Health has been a very valuable tool to help us further define patients that, most importantly, will not benefit from chemotherapy. So again, that patient with a small tumor that presents in your clinic that is not motivated for chemotherapy, that would be certainly a patient that we would want to consider for genomic health testing or oncotype testing to determine their recurrence score and their need for treatment. We all go into a chemotherapy recommendation, all clinicians go into that chemotherapy recommendation with a sense of trepidation because we know this is not easy for the patient and there are some lifelong side effects that they may encounter. So any tool that could help us either define those that don't need chemo or those that do need chemo is very helpful. So in an older patient population, it's an extremely valuable tool. And in that patient population with a small tumor, it has helped validate our decision not to treat or to treat The last thing I want to ask you about is the adjuvant therapy of patients with HER2-positive tumors and the use of trastuzumab, and this is something that really has evolved fairly recently over the last three or four years. Can you talk about, again, how do you explain trastuzumab to a patient who's about to receive it in the adjuvant setting and what to expect? So as a clinician, I typically am the type of person that draws things. And so I tend to draw things for patients that help them understand the mechanism of action of this particular drug to its target, which is the HER2 receptor, and how the HER2 is a family of receptors, and that Herceptin is targeted to that HER2 member of the HER family. And I think that by focusing on that, it helps patients understand the need for it. I think it helps them understand the toxicity profile, unlike chemotherapy, that it's targeted to the specific receptor and will not cause side effects to the healthy tissue, unlike chemotherapy. And I also focus on the fact that it's a very specific agent, and I think patients tend to understand that. What do you talk to them about in terms of side effects and risks? So up front, I always outline, because it is a monoclonal antibody, Herceptin is 98% humanized with 2% murine component. Initially, there's always the risk of a hypersensitivity reaction, and we monitor the patient. We infuse the medication over 90 minutes, and we do monitor that patient for 30 to 60 minutes 
after administration to actually ensure that it was a safe and successful administration. I then focus on a medication history and an important detailed health history. I want to outline a patient who may be potentially at risk for cardiac disease or somebody who has an underlying cardiac diagnosis. I focus on the fact that Herceptin has been known to cause cardiac damage or weakness of the heart muscle. So patients that may be on any type of antihypertensives just kind of alerts us to the fact that they're on them. It just highlights it. But we don't act any differently for those patients on hypertensive medications than we would a patient that's not on hypertensive medication. According to the literature, it doesn't really pan out age, and hypertensive risk has not panned out to be a risk factor for patients on Herceptin. I talked to them about the importance of alerting us to symptoms unexplained weight gain, shortness of breath. And it's not shortness of breath when you're doing exercise, but it's day-to-day shortness of breath. You run up a flight of stairs and you feel very winded when you get to the top of it. So I really try and bring that symptom assessment down to the level that a patient can understand. If they run five miles and they feel a little tired than they did three years ago, that may be a normal sequela of aging or treatment, but it's not directly related to the Herceptin. Whereas a patient who is walking down a hallway and finds when they get to the end of it, they're very exhausted or tired, that would be something that would be a reportable event to the office. The last thing that I would focus on is that while the risk of cardiomyopathy or cardiac damage is low, it's not zero, and that it's a lifetime risk. So these patients should report these symptoms at all phases of their life to their office. Now, one of the most common, actually the most common chemotherapy regimen that's utilized in patients with no positive tumors in the United States is a so-called dose-dense regimen of AC paclitaxel. And really, Memorial has really developed that regimen where the patients receive treatment every two weeks instead of every three weeks. In the actual major Herceptin trials that were done, they didn't use dose-dense, but you all have done some studies looking at the safety of dose-dense AC paclitaxel with trastuzumab. Can you talk about what you've seen and what your observations have been with patients who receive that? So Dr. Chow Dang was principal investigator on a study looking at the administration of dose-dense doxorubicin and cyclophosphamide followed by paclitaxel with Herceptin in a dose-dense Q2-week fashion. And I think that her literature has been reported in oncology literature. But what I have seen in my patient population that participated is that patients that got Q3-week chemotherapy, and we've more recently given the chemotherapy on a dose-dense Q2-week fashion, I have not seen in my particular practice any increased incidence of cardiac dysfunction when we shorten the time interval between chemotherapy treatment cycles. You know, it's interesting. When I know when I first heard about dose-dense, I think when a lot of other people did, the natural reaction was to think, well, they're going to get their chemo sooner. They're going to be more fatigued. It's going to be more difficult. And, you know, it seems like maybe that's not the way it's actually played out. Well, I think there's been a lot of data that shows dose-dense chemotherapy is not more fatiguing in terms of the clinical trials I've reported that. I think when you combine that with Herceptin, I think that it's fatiguing in the nature that for 
eight weeks, the patients are coming to the treatment center on a weekly basis because the way that we administered the combination paclitaxel with Herceptin was that every two weeks they receive paclitaxel and they receive weekly Herceptin until completion of chemotherapy. But we highlight for those patients that the side effect profile of Herceptin is such that the toxicities they're experiencing is from the chemotherapy. And in fact, the Herceptin is playing a very small, if anything, role in that side effect profile that patients are experiencing. And in fact, once they actually get off the chemotherapy and they're just receiving the duration of one year of Herceptin, you can see life come back into their eyes. You can see them starting to feel better. You can see their hair coming back. And they see us on a three-week basis. And you can can see them, they really feel much, much better. They start to get back into their lives. They're exercising. They're doing the things that they enjoy, despite the fact that they're getting Herceptin as a maintenance therapy for the total dose of one year. You know, it's interesting. We're seeing in other tumors trials looking at bevacizumab that we were talking about before in the adjuvant setting. And even in breast cancer, there's a study now looking at bevacizumab in the adjuvant setting, but also colon cancer, lung cancer. And, and there, they have the same thing where for a while they get the bevacizumab with the chemo, but then they're going to get it by itself. So antibody therapy going out to a year. And you hear these investigators in colon and lung cancer saying, well, wow, these patients maybe aren't going to be too happy coming into clinic for another year to receive an intravenous therapy. And I say, well, you know, it, it seems like what they see in breast cancer with Herceptin or Trastuzumab over that year, as you say, is that the patients, it's not a huge burden just to come into the clinic and get it because of the lack of side effects. Is that what you see in that year once they're through the chemo that they're able to sort of carry on their life pretty well? I will not shortchange the intrusion of a visit for a year going back to a health center that certainly brings some bad memories to every patient because they know they didn't enjoy their chemotherapy and the anxiety and frustration of that diagnosis. However, patients are committed to that year. And up front, they can take out their calendars and plan their life around their treatment. And they end up doing that. And they're committed because they know the data, or at least they've heard that it reduces the risk of a recurrence by 52%. And that motivates them to hang on. The good news is that in our patients at our cancer center, they were receiving the Herceptin once every three weeks, once they completed their chemotherapy, which is obviously not the package insert. But they tolerated that well, and they came in, and they got their treatment, and they saw their doctor, and they went back and did their business, and they lived their lives. And it's a very exciting phenomenon to see patients coming in for therapy and essentially being non-pulsed by the toxicity of that treatment. 